You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for this Blue Friday episode, my colleague Nick Lee. Hope everybody has had a good week and staying safe, staying healthy. Now for your least story here on Locked On Seahawks. Seahawks coach Pete Carroll spoke with the media on a Zoom press conference, and one of the big football-related questions that was thrown his way was about Seattle running their 4-3 base defense, something they did a lot last year, way more than the rest of the league. More than 50% of their defensive snaps were in the 4-3 look with three linebackers on the field and just four defensive backs really bucking what the rest of the league was doing. No other team was above 30% for base defensive usage last year. And without OTAs and minicamps, Nick, the Seahawks haven't had a chance yet to look at where their personnel is at on the field. So Carroll was noncommittal today when asked about how much they're going to play base defense next year. But if you were reading between the lines, it certainly looks like they have the flexibility now where they're going to be able to transition back to running a bit more nickel this next season if they choose to do so. It is going to be tough as well to do that with with no offseason workouts because if you do want to maybe alter a bit your philosophy on defense or change a bit of some of the packages, you'd love to do that on the field at the VMAC and instead of by Zoom or by Skype. And, and that, that's kind of hard to do. And, and it looks like with the news coming out uh, Thursday, that's that's going to be continuing until at least until training camp. So it, I think there's twofold. It's, it's difficult to see what kind of personnel you have to work with. And it's also difficult to make any wholesale changes until then. Um, I agree that there's probably a bit more depth because I think part of the reason why the Seahawks played so much space defense last year is they, they felt like Pete Carroll noted in his press conference, they, uh, they felt good about their depth at linebacker with Michael Kendricks in the fold. And I think that they also didn't – they weren't super happy on or super comfortable with their depth at defensive back. And I think this year there's a bit of a shift. They do have lots of linebackers in the room, but I think they, they feel better about the depth at, in the defensive back room, especially hopefully crossing fingers if Quentin Dunbar finds his way on the field this year. Yeah, Carroll didn't have anything new to really add on Quentin Dunbar. It did seem like he was trying to say they had good news, and then he stopped himself. So he didn't want to say something that he shouldn't say. You know how press conferences are. But uh, as long as they have him, that secondary is going to have more talent than what they had last year. And Ugo Amadi's going into year two. Marquise Blair, Pete Carroll was talking today, that he may get some looks as a big nickel so they can get him on the field. That's something they're already working on. So from that perspective – it does look like they are leaning towards at least running a little more nickel than they did last year. But when I look at the personnel, you just drafted Jordan Brooks in the first round, and Pete Carroll again said he's going to be an extraordinary player for us. So they're going to be looking to get him on the field starting very quickly, get him out there so that he can make an impact. You've still got Bobby Wagner, K.J. Wright still in the roster. You've got Cody Barton. It's the most talented position group on this football team So you want to get your best 11 players on the field. From that perspective, I still think Pete Carroll and Ken Norton Jr. are going to have a hard time moving away from their base defense. If you're just looking at what's the best group of 11 players that we could have out there, only having two of those linebackers on the field would seem like it would be a bit of a mistake, even with some of the moves they've made, like trading for Quentin Dunbar. 
I still think this team has been constructed to run more base than other teams just based on that personnel. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the, the like you mentioned, the Jordan Brooks draft, that certainly doesn't jive with them wanting to go away from base defense um, and, unless this is truly it for K.J. Wright or if he even lasts the season, who knows. Um, but if, if you're if you are hopeful for a future of, with K.J. Wright in Seattle and they want Jordan Brooks on the field, that doesn't really jive. And also, they are they are pretty darn deep at linebacker. They they feel really good about the linebackers. Obviously, Bobby Wagner, future Hall of Famer, KJ Wright still there. Then you got Cody Barton, you got Ben Burke Curvin, you got Shaquem Griffin, who might play a linebacker role eventually again. Who knows? I, I think that, that there's there's just lots of people, a lot of players that they feel really good about at linebacker position. That if they truly go to more or, or less of a base defense, that will see less and less of the field and have to carve out more roles on special teams leaving at least one, probably two of those guys out of the mix when it comes to roster cuts. I, I, yeah, the, the, just the depth they've built at linebackers certainly doesn't jive with them wanting to go to less of a base defense. This is just my viewpoint. Based on the moves they've made, Bruce Irvin coming in as a player that can play Sam linebacker and also rush off the edge in nickel situations, maybe that opens things up a little bit more for you to run a bit more nickel because of the personnel that you have on the front line. I think that also played into things last year, not having a very good pass rush. They were using their linebackers as blitzers. And so I think there were a lot of factors that necessitated playing more base defense I just I look at the moves that they made at the nickel corner position or the lack of moves maybe Quentin Dunbar can play in the slot some Marquise Blair can play there some Ugo Amadi in year two they're expecting him to be better and and show some improvements but they didn't add another veteran to the mix there which I thought was something they would absolutely do and that's kind of telling to me that They may play a little bit more nickel, but they're not suddenly going to become a team that's running 70, 80% of the time with five defensive backs in the field. There's just too much talent at the linebacker spot, and they haven't made the moves I felt was that were necessary in the secondary as far as the nickel position goes to really say, we are going to play this 50, 60% of the time. I could see them playing a little bit more, but this is not going to be a seismic shift in 2020, at least in my estimation. No, because they're already up a creek with with the lack of off-season workouts and what they can do. So, especially at the beginning of the year, maybe what I could see happening is that the start of the year, we we see a lot of base. Seahawks Twitter loses their mind, and eventually uh, Pete Carroll and the defense will move to a nickel as the guys get more experience and as they get their their sea legs, so to speak, with the season starting and, and kind of having an abrupt and awkward off-season that once the football, once the pads start thumping and, and hopefully late July and August, that they'll get their sea legs. And I, I maybe after a month or so of regular season play, you'll start to see a shift. But certainly at the beginning with the lack of offseason programs, I don't see a huge seismic shift either. That's really how this should play out anyway. But week to week, you should be evaluating the opponent that you're playing and making game plan changes. I felt like last year, pretty much every week for the most part, they were playing almost exclusively base defense. And there are opponents that you are going to face where that does not fly. And there are teams you'll be able to get away with it. I'm thinking about the Buccaneers game right now. Tampa Bay was just throwing the ball up and down the field. That is an opponent that you should have been in a lot more nickel. And Jamar Taylor just wasn't able to get the job done as a veteran. They weren't comfortable throwing Ugo Mati as a rookie out there that early. By the end of the year, he was given that opportunity. But 
just the, again, the fact that they have not gone out and added another veteran that can compete against him, that is a telling sign to me, whether, you know, Pete Carroll wants to admit it or not. I, I think they're still looking at the personnel that they have, at least on paper, and thinking our best defense is probably still going to be that base where we've got three linebackers on the field that have athleticism, that can get after the quarterback. I mean, Jordan Brooks is going to be able to do that. You're going to be able to blitz him some. He's going to be a much better athlete than K.J. Wright is out there. K.J. Wright at Sam linebacker can mitigate some of that. It's a better position for him at this point in his career. So it's going to be fun to see how all this plays out. There's a lot of moving parts. I think they have more flexibility than they had last year, but I am not, again, I am not expecting a seismic shift where they're suddenly going to abandon the base most of the time. This is still going to be a defense that runs a lot of 4-3. When we come back for the second quarter, we're going to continue our Turn Back the Clock series. We're going back to 1979, one of the Seahawks' first really productive, solid seasons during their time as an NFL franchise. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? RockAuto.com's prices are the same for everybody and are reliably low. RockAuto.com always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear like airlines do. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique, remarkably easy to navigate, and all the parts are available for your vehicle. Choose the brand, specifications, and prices you prefer. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck right locked in in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me on our Blue Friday episode, Nick Lee. Later in the show, we're going to continue our top 100 Seahawks countdown. We are now moving into the 60s. We are moving rapidly through this countdown, but still so many great Seahawks players that we have yet to cover. But first, continuing our Turn Back the Clock series. We had a lot of fun with this last week, Nick. We're going back to one of the early years in Seahawks history, 1979. And football was a little bit different back then than it is right now. As far as the types of offenses and defenses that teams had out there, much more reliance on the running game. And really the 70s were owned by two or three teams, specifically the Pittsburgh Steelers, who won their fourth Super Bowl of the decade in 1979. Yeah, and that was the the peak of the, the Steelers dynasty, Terry Bradshaw, all those guys. Um, so certainly, yeah, you could commit uh, borderline manslaughter on the field on defense back in those days. Um, certainly a different brand of football nowadays, and yeah, with offense and defensively. Earl Campbell wins the MVP running back for the Houston Oilers, had an amazing season, amazing career, Hall of Fame career. And the number one receiver that year in the NFL was one Steve Largent, who, uh, you know, had a pretty decent career at the Seahawks. And that was one of his first big years. He had a Pro Bowl season, 1,100 yards a year before, and that was that was Steve Largent's second of eight 1,000-yard seasons. But once, you know, a lot of receivers have 1,000-yard seasons, but once you go back-to-back, then you've kind of announced yourself as, I'm one of the better receivers in the NFL, and Steve Largent did that in 1979. Yeah, this was one of Jim Zorn's best seasons in Seattle, and pedestrian numbers by and large, but he, he finished with 20 touchdowns. 
and just 18 interceptions. And the reason I said it that way, I mean, 18 interceptions still a lot, but we've talked about this. Jim Zorn had a bunch of seasons. He threw more interceptions than touchdowns. So this was not one of them. This was one of more his more productive seasons. And certainly having Steve Largen out there amassing over 1,200 receiving yards and nine touchdowns helps. Sam McCullum was their number two receiver, well over 700 yards. To have two guys producing those kind of numbers in 1979 was pretty impressive. And in the backfield, they didn't have a 1,000-yard rusher, but Sherman Smith rushed for over 500 yards. 500 rushing yards out of Dan Dornick as a fullback. And so they might not have had one guy that really jumped off the sheet, but they were much more productive running the football that year than they had been their first three seasons as a franchise. And that really helped them. And it's just too bad they started off so poorly that season. They, they started one and four to open the year. They went eight and three the rest of the season. When that year ended, they were one of the hottest teams in the AFC. But just like the year before, nine and seven just wasn't quite good enough to get to the playoffs for the first time. Yeah, they won five of their last six. And they finished just one game out of the wild card. I think it was against the Broncos that they, they lost that too, that they lost out on that wild card spot to their division rival Broncos. And that, that's just a real bummer way to finish the season after, yeah, you, you start one and three or one and four, and then you just go on this torrid pace. And they, they went through some impressive teams too. Like the, they, they did beat the Raiders. They beat the Broncos. And they, they played some tough teams along the way. The Chargers back then were no joke. They had Dan Fouts. So and they also beat Earl Campbell Earl Campbell's Houston Oilers. So they they didn't have a cup, a cupcake schedule either. So it, it was really a, a bummer to watch them go. Or watch I wasn't alive back then, but to see them follow or fall just one game short of the playoffs, especially after having a second straight nine and seven season under Coach Jack Patera. Um, but yeah, as far as they were the fourth best offense in the NFL that year, pretty balanced. Like you mentioned, no thousand yard rusher Sherman Smith, eleven rushing touchdowns that year, um, and so they had. When you have Smith with Dornick, that's over twelve hundred yards rushing, and with Jim Zorn and Steve Largent's connection, pretty balanced on on offense. And and, and Sherman Smith actually had just a tick under five hundred receiving yards too. So you got Sherman Smith back there with almost thirteen hundred scrimmage yards and fifteen touchdowns. That'll get the job done. Yeah, and Dornick had a bunch of receptions that year, too. Those two guys were dynamic that season out of the backfield, both as runners and receivers. And then you add in Largent, McCollum, both those guys playing really well on the outside. I think the thing that held this team back, they were not terrible on defense necessarily, but uh, they were not elite. Let's just put it that way. Dave Brown and Keith Simpson on the outside had nine interceptions for the Seahawks. And I think really the one thing that this team was missing above all else, they didn't have a pass rushing presence on this football team. And they're going to get that the next year. In 1980, they're going to draft Jacob Green. But they didn't have that player that was really going to pin his ears back and get after the quarterback, wreak havoc off the edge. They were lacking. Really that whole front line was weak. Their linebacking core was okay. But the defense is really what held them back. They were fourth in total offense for points. They were 24th out of 28 teams. It was very tightly nestled together. But 24th out of 28th in scoring against, that typically prevents teams from getting to the playoffs unless your offense just wins shootouts week in, week out. And they did that for a good portion of that season on offense. But it just wasn't quite enough for them to overcome the defense and get to the postseason. 
And this is a fun little tidbit as well about that nine and seven season. Another guy that was catching passes from Jim Zorn uh, didn't put up any huge sexy numbers, but still a solid player nevertheless is our beloved Steve Rabel. 20 catches, 252 yards, and a touchdown as a 25-year-old receiver out of Georgia Tech. And obviously, of course, he's a bit he's known a bit more now, <laughs> um, more of them just besides his playing career as the beloved voice of the Seahawks. But yeah, Steve Rabel catching passes in, back in the day. Yeah, Rabel only played a couple seasons in the NFL before he transitioned into broadcasting. And he's been with the Seahawks for decades, a, a beloved figure. Never was a great player necessarily, but this shows you that he was not a guy that just stood on the sidelines, though. I mean, 20 receptions for 252 yards, not many players achieve that kind of production. Yeah, 1,000 career receiving yards. Yeah, that's way better than most receivers that come into the league. So for the people that just think, oh, he was just barely on the roster, Steve Rabel was productive enough to be in the league for several years and have over 1,000 receiving yards. And so – this is not a guy that was just a camp body for a few minutes. He actually produced on the field. So it is cool to look back at what he was able to accomplish during his time in Seattle. I'm just looking at the defensive players that they had on this roster. They, I mentioned Keith Simpson, Dave Brown, Kerry Justin was another corner that they had on their team. So I think the secondary was definitely the biggest strength they had. Keith Butler in the middle was a very good linebacker, but they really didn't have a lot of other playmakers in their linebacking core and the defensive line, it was near non-existent at that point. That was really the biggest weakness for this football team. And over the next couple of years, they were able to get Jacob Green. They were able to get Jeff Bryan. A few years later, Joe Nash is going to be coming to town. So they're going to fix that in later years, which is going to play a big role in getting to the playoffs finally in 1983. But they were so close this year, just as a team that was only in its fourth year of existence they just had enough holes they were not able to overcome it. Now let's talk about 1979 away from the football field. There's a lot of statistics here that are crazy. You looked this one up. The average cost of a new house in 1979. <laughs> this is basically my mortgage payment for a month. $58,000 to buy a new house in 1979. And the gallon of gas, 79 cents in the coronavirus era that might not sound too expensive with the way gas prices have plummeted the last few months but compared to what prices have been in recent years that's pretty darn cheap for a gallon of gas yeah and fifty eight thousand dollars for a new house i mean that might buy you a porta potty in seattle now <laughs> who knows um, yeah 79 cents a gallon certainly and then i think i read that the average uh, income was about twenty seven thousand or something like that a year so obviously it's been a while it's you know 40 something 50 some years since then 40 some yeah yeah 41 years since then so it's times have changed a lot also the birth of ESPN ESPN launched in 1979 Espen, Espen that's right <laughs> uh, I'm just picturing Ron Burgundy now hosting <laughs> welcome to Espen I'm Ron Burgundy no <laughs> and also as far as pop, pop culture I know we we both love pop culture Corbin for different reasons but, you know, some really great music came out back then. Of course, the all in all, another brick in the wall. <laughs> the wall. Pink Floyd came out. The, the, the very famous uh, album came out that year and, and just launched a whole revolution of Pink Floyd music. And, and also just other songs, you know, My Sharona from The Knack, I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor, YMCA from Village People. All that music came out in 1979. Pretty darn good uh, staying power kind of music year. 
Yeah, a lot of those songs are staples still today in 2020, 41 years later. A lot of those songs still are played regularly. So a great year for music. I thought it was a pretty good year for movies too. I'm, I am a huge Rocky franchise fan. I, oh, yeah. I know there are some people out there that don't like some of the later films, but this is my hot take for our uh, Turn Back the Clock segment. I think Rocky II is probably the second worst one in the series. Rocky V just never should have been made. But Rocky, Rocky two to me basically was just Rocky one and a rerun. So yeah, the montage scenes are still cool and pump me up, but um, it's not one of my favorites, but still that movie came out in 1979 Superman, one of my all time favorites before they made like 90 sequels that were stupid alien came out in 1979 as well. So some pretty good uh, movies in cinema that year. Yeah, yeah, the Amityville Horror as well. And yeah, the Superman, this is not uh, Henry Cavill. This is way back then. I actually failed to look up the actor, and, and I'm going to get killed for not knowing the actor. But uh, it, it's one of the first classic Superman movie. Reeves. Uh, yeah, there you go. There you go. Okay, good. And thank you. I'm sure people are screaming at their phones right now. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, great, great stuff. I'll, I, I love, I still listen to plenty of this music from 1979. I was raised by an 80s rock kid. Uh, my dad was super into 70s and 80s rock. So a lot of these songs that were popular back in 1979, I still have on my Spotify right now. I'm a very old soul. So this was kind of my sweet spot for music. Yeah, there was a lot of really good hair metal back then that I oh, still yeah. listen to occasionally. Uh, some classic metal. Um, we saw Metallica was starting their rise up during this time period. I don't know if 1979 was when their albums came out. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of really good music came out then. And this was the thing I had to circle for 1979. This shows you, those of you that are listening, how much I love video games. Asteroids came out in 1979. <laughs> and I, I played an original atari asteroids like two years ago and so it, it is crazy like sometimes nostalgia with video games really bad like when i played an n64 a few years ago i played for like five minutes and my eyes were hurting so bad from how bad the graphics were that i said you know what this this isn't even nostalgia for me at this point i'm done but i played asteroids for a good hour with one of the original games that came out in 1979 still a game that is a staple in video game lore Oh man, I've played Asteroids recently as well. And that was one of those games, even as a kid, again, I'm 28 years old. So obviously I wasn't alive in 1979, but my dad took me to like Nickel City. And so we, we go frequently to Ocean City, New Jersey for the boardwalk on family reunions because um, my dad's from Philly. And we would always go to the arta- arcades and that was certainly a game we always sought out. Asteroids is one of those all-time greats, the timeless, really. When we come back for the third quarter, it's time to continue our top 100 Seahawks countdown. We're going to be looking at numbers 70 through 66 as we continue our rankings. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking quality tasting protein bars without crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar comes in 16 amazing flavors. My personal favorite is the peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein and just 3 grams of sugar and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first one, I won't go without it before hitting my squat rack or going for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, 
nut and gluten-free, soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste associated with most protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and check out all their flavor options. You can build your own custom box and new flavors will be coming out May 10th. Try this delicious product for yourself and change your exercise game by using promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Blue Friday edition. Nick Lee joining me. It's time to continue our top 100 Seahawks countdown. We are now going to be going into the 60s. We're now 30% done with our rankings. We did 75 through 71 yesterday. Going to do 70 through 66 today. Some real modern flair. Two players that are currently on the roster that we will be covering today. I'm going to start with one that not that long ago was playing for the Seahawks. His career ended after the 2012 season at number 70, linebacker Leroy Hill, who really started off his career with the Seahawks with a bang back in 2005. Yeah, seven and a half sacks his rookie year. I mean, that, that'll, that'll impress anybody. That'll jump off the page anytime. Seahawks certainly could have used that last year. But he's one of those players that I, I found interesting. 20 sacks in eight seasons. So after the seven and a half sack season, his sack total certainly took a dip, but he gets up here for me um, for his longevity and consistency. Not many Seahawks players played in, in Super Bowl extra large in 2005 and then stayed around long enough to be part of that 2012 season that saw Seattle springboard themselves to a Super Bowl that next season. Two very different eras of Seahawks football, and Leroy Hill was part of both of them. I think that's a pretty cool part of his career, that he was really a bridge between two key eras in Seahawks, in Seahawks history and also part of four different playoff teams and in his Seahawks time. He, he certainly was never a star or pro bowler, but he was with some darn good Seahawks teams. Yeah, he was a really good player. I think that part of the reason that he gets forgotten by fans is that he had some issues off the field. 2010 season, he played just one game because of those issues. And so that kind of spoils the good things that he did in the field. But I like that you mentioned he was one of the few guys that was a bridge between the Mike Holmgren era and the Pete Carroll era. Not many of those guys lasted in Seattle. There was tons of roster turnover and Hill was gone after 2012 because they had KJ Wright. They had Bobby Wagner. They had Malcolm Smith. They drafted Bruce Irvin. There just wasn't any room for him anymore, but he was still a very productive player for them during that 2012 season when they got back to the playoffs. He saw that through. You mentioned the the standout rookie year. He had seven and a half sacks for that Super Bowl bound team. He and Lofa Tutupu both were outstanding rookies that year for the Seattle Seahawks. And so he absolutely is one of the top 100 players in Seahawks history. He is somebody that I put a little bit of an asterisk next to because I feel like if not for some of the off-field issues, he might have been an even better player in Seattle, might be higher on this list, but he still had some very productive seasons at an important position and, again, played for four playoff teams as a key part of the defenses during those four years. At number 69, a player we're very familiar with, he's had back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons for the Seahawks, joining exclusive company alongside players like Ricky Waters, Chris Warren, Sean Alexander, Marshawn Lynch, Kurt Warner, the guys that have eclipsed 1,000-plus yards more than two times in Seattle. Chris Carson is now one of those, and he was in the 90s when we did this countdown last year. That's the difference another 1,000-plus yard season is going to make for you on this countdown, and he's a very young player that has a chance to go get that century mark again in 2020. Yeah, he's one of only six Seahawks running backs to have back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons, so 
He's he's certainly up there. He's turning himself into a top seven, eight running back in the NFL. And that might even be conservative. And with another 1,000-yard season, he's going to soar up this list. And I think he's going to be on squarely on the national pundits radar as one of the better running backs in the league. And, and with – I think I read that he's only one of three or four running backs in the NFL right now that's returning, having gotten back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons with at least seven touchdowns. So he's been uber productive. And that's with injury concerns. So it's, it's amazing to think that we kind of tagged this a bit of durability issues with, with Chris Carson. He had over 2,300 rushing yards in the last two years. So that's, I mean, it, I guess maybe the timing of his injuries have been good. But uh, I think with him rising up this list even more, how high he goes on this list will depend on two things. One, of course, is health. And the other is his contract beyond 2020. If the Seahawks do extend him and he stays healthy, I think he has the potential to be a top four or five running back in Seahawks history um, conservatively. I think that he easily gets into the top five if he get, stays on in their one, two years and it stays this productive. He's just been great, uh, really productive. Over 1,200 rushing yards last year, seven touchdowns. That is the difference between, yeah, 90s and now 69. Have another 1,100-yard season or so. We're going to be talking top 50, I think. Yeah, there are some other very notable running backs in Seahawks history that are going to be higher on this list. I'm not going to share where they're all ranked, but all those players had at least 3,000-yard seasons in a row. And so he can enter a really elite company in Seahawks running back history. I mean, this is one of the positions Seattle has had a lot of really good players. They've had some iconic running backs, especially in recent history, players like Sean Alexander and Marshawn Lynch, now Chris Carson joining that club guys that were able to consistently put up really good numbers, find the end zone regularly. Chris Carson's a developing receiver that had much better production catching the football last year. He's solid in pass pro. If he can cut back on the fumbles some and he can stay healthy, he's got a chance for another big season, and we'll see what the Seahawks choose to do then. But he's got a great chance to really shoot up this list, very similarly to how he did from last year to this year. Now at number 68, a player that wasn't on our list last year, We have more writers that are involved in determining these rankings, but I think this player absolutely deserves to be here, even though he's only been with the team since the middle of 2017, and that's tackled Dwayne Brown. My biggest argument why he is a top 100 Seahawk, there are only a couple of tackles in Seahawks history that have been all pro selections. We know Walter Jones basically was every year he was in Seattle. He's either first team or second team all pro being one of the best tackles ever played the game. And then there's Dwayne Brown, who is a second team all pro in 2018. He made the pro bowl playing part of a season for the Seahawks in 2017 and should have been a pro bowler in 2018. Wasn't picked for some reason, but all pro is more important anyway. My point being, he is already one of the most decorated tackles to ever play for the Seahawks. And the the list of the solid stellar tackles in Seahawks history after Walter Jones is actually pretty short. And honestly, for me, this is a bit high for Dwayne Brown, not necessarily because I don't think he's a good player. 68 is pretty high for a guy who has only played two and a half seasons, but really he's been one of Seattle's most reliable tackles since the GOAT himself, Walter Jones, retired after the 08 season. And after the Seahawks traded for him in 2017, he became the instant alpha dog on the offensive line. You could just tell the offensive line was just instantly better, instantly received confidence. And like you mentioned, Pro Bowl in 2017, second team All-Pro 2018. I would have him probably in, in probably the low 70s for now, or uh, in the mid-70s maybe, and just because he's only played in 37 games. But give him another year or two playing at this level, 
he's going to pass Russell Okung. And I, I think that given his age and injuries last year, that that's he probably doesn't have a ton left, but at least a couple seasons. Don't count him out raising up this list. In fact, don't count him out given how he's talking about his career, perhaps continuing beyond 35, 36, 37 years old. He might be the next best tackle besides Walter Jones in Seahawks history when this is all said and done. Who knows? We don't know the exact future of him, but really the sky continues to be the limit if he can play at this level and just stay healthy. Yeah, the age and injury concerns are things to watch as far as the future goes. But I think if you're looking, if you're using the all-pro model to make your your choices, I mean, like I said, he's the only tackle not named Walter Jones that's been an all-pro selection for the Seahawks. So that probably carried more weight for me than it did for some of the other people that were doing our rankings here. I know Rob Rang had him way higher on his list than any of us, and his rationale was he's the second-best tackle they've ever had. And you could make a strong argument with the all-pro thing that he's probably right on that, even if he's only been with the team a few years. At number 67, we've talked so many times about how the Seahawks were in quarterback purgatory in the 1990s, whether it was Dan McGuire, Rick Meyer, Stan Gelbaugh. I can keep naming the quarterbacks that they chucked onto the field in the 1990s, aside from a couple years with Dave Craig at the beginning of the decade. Really the only stability they had at quarterback was bringing in a 41-year-old Warren Moon in 1997 through 25 touchdowns, 16 interceptions, and was the MVP of the Pro Bowl Back then, that was an incredible accomplishment. Now quarterbacks play like to their 80s, so it's a little different. But in the mid-1990s, a 41-year-old quarterback making the Pro Bowl, putting up those kind of numbers, was remarkable. And for him to do that coming back to the Pacific Northwest at that stage of his career, even if he only played two seasons with the team, it was the most important position on the field. And he was the best quarterback they had in the decade. Yeah, obviously, if we're talking about best overall career players to put on a Seahawks uniform – Warren Moon's in the top 10 at worst, probably top five. But, you know, he started his career in 1997 when he's 41, like you said, threw for 3,678 yards and 25 TDs in 97. And that was really the only full season he played in Seattle. He started in 24 games with a pedestrian 81.3 rating over those one and a half, two count at two seasons, counting just his Seahawks career. If you just deleted his whole career except for the Seahawks years, you probably don't even have him on this list, to be honest. Maybe because he becomes a Pro Bowl quarterback and there's not a lot of Pro Bowl quarterbacks in Seahawks history. I'll give him that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I get it. It's Warren Moon. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. Everyone knows who Warren Moon is. And, yes, at 41 years old, playing at that kind of level was, is pretty impressive, especially back then. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to pretend like he's the greatest Seahawks quarterback of all time, and that's why he's at 66. But, yeah, I'll, I'll give him some props for over 3,500 yards and 25 TDs at 41 years old and that he, you know, he finished 11th in, in quarterback rating in 1997. Obviously you had some really solid quarterbacks back then, Steve Young, Brett Favre, you know, Drew Bledsoe, John Elway, those kind of guys. But yeah, he's, he's, he was still slinging it with those young guys at 41 years old. So I'll give him a ton of props and, and really just the name value, just the, the clout that Warren Moon brings, of course, will jet him up this list. Yeah. I think that was probably something that, whether knowingly or not knowingly impacted some of our writers picking these rankings. For me, I had him right in this range in the 60s just because I, I do think when you look at the fact that he's one of the few quarterbacks I've had that's been a Pro Bowl, or they've had a handful of guys that made the Pro Bowl, I just felt like his accomplishments there, he was worthy of being on this list. But I wouldn't put him any higher just because, again, he really ultimately had one good year in a Seahawks uniform. Most of his career was with the Oilers and the Vikings. So – 
most of his accomplishments being a Hall of Fame quarterback were not in a Seahawks uniform still. I think the contributions he made, especially considering how crappy the quarterback play was in the 90s, he's worthy of being on this list here in that 60 to 70 range. Closing out our latest cluster of five players here at number 66, Dwayne Harper, cornerback that played for the Seahawks in the 80s and 90s. We had one of his teammates, Patrick Hunter, that we talked about on the show on Wednesday. Dwayne Harper, in my estimation, and the rankings show this, I, I feel Dwayne Harper was the better of the two players, and he has some of the craziest stats imaginable for a player. And this is, to me, this might still be the craziest stat in Seahawks history. 1993, Dwayne Harper's last season with the Seattle Seahawks. This is a player that had no forced fumbles to his name going into 1993 and I had to do a double take when I saw this on pro football reference I thought 10 forced fumbles that, that's insane there's no way that's got to be a typo I was looking at a bunch of other different stat sites uh, stat sites I looked at the Seahawks stats and yes he forced 10 fumbles in 19 just just by that 1993 forcing 10 fumbles I I can't even read a full sentence because it still stuns me that's just the kind of statistic you don't see very often and you know what I just looked it up statistically and and as long as they've they've been recording that forced fumble stat that is the most in a single season in NFL history yep a couple guys have tied that we got Robert Mathis Charles Tillman and OCU Minora have also reached that 10 forced fumble pinnacle but he was the only one. He was the first one to set it. He actually set that record in 1993. No one touched it until this decade in 2010, or this past decade, I should say. So, yeah, that alone, just one of those stats that just blow you off your chair, that, that'll that put you in the top 100 easily. And, you know, forced fumbles, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, that's 10 opportunities to give your defense a takeaway and put your offense back on the field. That's, that's no joke. And he, he just missed two games over six years starting all 16 games three years in a row at corner. Pretty reliable presence, 13 interceptions. Um, again, like, like I mentioned last week, the pro football reference approximate value stat, I know it's not perfect. I know it's pretty raw and there's some problems with it, but he's got a 45 approximate value, which is better than fellow corners Willie Williams or Keith Simpson, which I know are, are held in pretty high regard among Seahawks corners history. Um, he played a role in the 1988 squad that went 9-7 and seven and got to the playoffs. Just an underrated, productive, reliable guy for six years. Never, you know, he didn't pop off the page besides the 10 forced fumbles, but, you know, didn't have an all-pro season or pro bowl or anything like that. But just a steady, solid, consistent player. Yeah, Rob and I were talking about this Wednesday. When you look at Dwayne Harper and you – look back at Patrick Hunter and Robert Blackman, some of the players they had that secondary late 80s, early 90s. I think that group just gets overlooked because the talent they had up front, you still had Joe Nash, you had Cortez Kennedy, you had Terry Wooden at linebacker, Dave Wyman, Eugene Robinson was in that secondary. I mean, there were a lot of big names still that got a lot more recognition, but both these players were really good. Dwayne Harper had 354 tackles in his six scenes with the Seahawks, so he was a productive player as a run defender along with the fact he had 13 interceptions and the 10 forced fumbles that one year. I'm just I'm still blown away by that, especially considering the rest of his career. I think he had two forced fumbles combined the rest of his NFL career. It's just one of those odd stats that you – 
probably will be happy that you know for trivia night because that's the kind of sports question that they would ask at a trivia night. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Nick at Nick Lee 51. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is by visiting our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. When we come back on Monday, Rob Rang and I will continue our top 100 countdown, plus a look at a potential breakout player on offense and defense for the Seahawks in 2020. Enjoy your weekend. Go Hawks.